0: Hey podcast listeners, the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies is sponsoring its annual Biblical Symposium at St. Elizabeth Orthodox Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, March 8 to 9, 2019. This year's keynote speaker is Dr. Robert Miller from the Catholic University of America. Meet Father Paul Tarazi and other scholars who will present and discuss papers on biblical exegesis and language. Join Father Mark Bulos and Dr. Richard Benton for a live recording of the Bible as Literature podcast. Engage with others like you who are committed to biblical studies for all who
1: have ears to hear. Register online at EphesusSchool.org. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Too often, we co-opt the prohibition against judgment in Matthew as a mechanism of our self-imposed fragility. We don't want to be challenged with our sins, so when confronted, we blather, who are you to judge? Fortunately, Matthew 7 renders this question totally non-functional. Who am I? I am exactly what you are and what St. Paul proclaims me to be, nothing, absolutely nothing. It is the Lord's teaching that is the something by which we are judged. Since we are nothing, I have no right not to read his judgment aloud and you have no right to cover your ears. Make no mistake. There shall be no safe spaces in the kingdom of heaven. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Father Mark Bulos and this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 258 of The Bible as Literature podcast when you present the judgment of the biblical text and it stirs a reaction in people their first reaction always is who are you to judge and the more faithful you are to the biblical text the more passionate that retort tends to be And it's really forced me as a priest to become introspective about the content of my speech. What is it that I'm saying? Am I conveying the biblical text or am I conveying personal opinion? And to the extent that I'm conveying the biblical text, am I allowing that text to judge me as harshly as it judges the assembly? It's a very important and difficult challenge it's the challenge of teaching but understanding that fine line between the text speaking and the preacher giving his personal opinion is at the heart of this question of judgment because paul as we've said in the past in our discussions of 1 corinthians chapter 4 on the one hand is insistent that you may not judge anyone before the time he won't even judge himself And in the same breath, he talks about not going beyond what the text itself says, but within the bounds of what is written in Scripture, Paul feels entirely empowered to forcefully relay the judgment contained within the bounds of Scripture. But that gets complicated in Matthew because that's what Jesus does, and Jesus is judged for it. So this... Discussion of judgment in Matthew is nuanced and important for the school of biblical teaching.
0: Only one opinion counts, because there's only one judge, there's only one judgment. And that is what Paul is saying when he says he doesn't even judge himself, because even his opinion doesn't matter. Only God's opinion matters. And chapters five and six we were explaining all the different excuses that people have to show that they're not really on the hook oh they're fine oh you know i put blinders on my eyes so that i don't ever look at a woman with lust oh i never hate someone in my heart i'm disappointed i never hate them which means i'm not a murderer they come up with all these stories because they think that they're the judge that's the only way that it would make any sense Do we claim to have the same mind as God? Do we claim to have the same point of view as God? Do we claim to be privy to the same information as God? By no means. We are unable to judge because we're not the judge. We're not the judge all these clever explanations for why what we do is not really a sin or is not really going to be judged or is really okay or is whatever we want to say in our wacky interpretation of the text it always ends up letting us off the hook well it doesn't matter if we think we're off the hook or not it doesn't matter There is only one judge, and I'm going to keep saying it because that's all that matters. So when Matthew goes into chapter seven, we have to have five and six clearly in our minds because it's not saying be nice to each other, don't say mean things to each other. It means there's only one judge.
1: What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians is highly functional here in chapter seven of Matthew with respect to judgment. Humanly speaking, it's very easy. For those who are wise, and that's why Paul ridicules the wise in 1 Corinthians, it's very easy for them to start to believe in their own wisdom. What's unique about the scriptural teaching in 1 Corinthians is that Paul recognizes the importance of having an actual criticism in your life, but finds a way to remove the ego of the one offering criticism from the equation. He does so by making this point that you just raised, Richard, that only one opinion counts. He demotes the importance of the teacher so that the teaching might gain ascendancy. What's powerful in that circumstance is that you don't have this silly dynamic you have in the Midwest that we've lived with for years where you are unable to give someone a valid criticism because they abuse their prohibition against judgment by uttering this phrase, who are you to judge? The answer to that question, according to Scripture, is that I'm nothing. But the Lord's instruction is something. And this is exactly what it says. It applies to all of us. I'm going to read it to you and explain it to you, and you can decide how you want to respond to that text. Because you're right, I can't judge you. But the one who can judge is coming to judge you. And he will ask you to give an account in Matthew, shifting to Matthew from 1 Corinthians, he will ask you to give an account for every stroke and every dot and every inscription on the page. So all of us, teachers and students, need to handle chapter 7 verse 1 with care. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. The audience here, the people
0: commanded, are the ones hearing the text. This is in direct contradiction to the phrase that you kept saying, Father, which is, who are you to judge? The question is not about that person or the other person, the question is about the one who's listening to the text. I may not judge so that I am not judged. It doesn't mean, Father Mark, who are you to judge me? That's not what it means because I can't assume your relationship to the text or your relationship to God. All I know is that I may not judge. It's functional for the one listening, and this is one thing that we've been repeating over and over again also, that I am not Able to judge because I'm not the judge. Don't forget, the theme that we're covering throughout this whole book so far has been the kingdom. In the kingdom, there is one king and there is one judge, and it's not me.
1: And this verse, Richard, is highly nuanced because, on the one hand, it is exactly what you said it's a warning to the addressee of the text that they are not to judge or they will be judged. However, to the extent that he's addressing teachers, he is raising the following question. When you teach and a judgment crosses your lips, you will be judged. Are you condemned because it's your judgment? Or are you giving a witness because it's the judgment of the Lord? I mentioned earlier that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew conveys the judgment of the Lord and is therefore judged and sentenced to death. Now, when we discussed this in our reading of the Gospel of Mark, we explained how the Father intervened to reverse the judgment of the human court. But at this juncture in Matthew in chapter 7, the challenge to the teacher always is what are you giving your life for? Are you giving your life for your fleshly, transient words? And therefore, when you are judged for giving your opinion, Is it a condemnation against you, or are you giving your life for the judgment of the life-giving text? It's important to clarify also for our listeners. We, as Americans, think of the word judgment in negative terms, but this betrays our own heritage because we all know that the court system safeguards life in the United States. The judgment of the Lord safeguards life for his people. So, the tension, if I may, Richard, the tension lies in this question of whose opinion is functional for you. The teacher
0: must teach this teaching. When the people hearing the teacher read the text that judges them, and they say to the teacher, Who are you to judge? There are two problems with that. One is, That's not what this teaching is saying. It's saying that the one listening is not able to judge, not the one speaking. And secondly, it's not the person that you have to discern whether they're the right person or an upstanding person or a good person and whether they have the right to judge you for this thing. They have to read the text. And so if the teacher is being consistent, complete with the text and the text is judgmental or the text is judging, then the teacher is submitting to the text by reading the word of judgment. If the listener is submitting to the word of judgment, then they know not to judge. And they know that they are being judged by the text and by the teaching. And if the teacher is inconsistent with the text, maybe the disciple says, I'm not clear on how this fits with the text because it looks like it might be contradicting the text. The text is what judges. The text is the teaching. And everyone, teacher and student, function as servants of the text.
1: For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So Returning to the example I gave about the judgment conveyed by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is consistently judging throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's judging us now as he gives this instruction, and theologians will say, well, he can judge because he's the Son of God, but that's not how Jesus presents himself in Matthew. It's certainly not how he presents himself in Mark. And in John, he's even more explicit. He says flat out, I just do whatever my dad says. He says it explicitly. I just follow his instruction. In Mark, Jesus doesn't actually give his own teaching. He simply repeats the teaching of the Old Testament. And here in Matthew, which is consistent with the genealogy, he's presenting a wisdom literature in the Sermon on the Mount That is an exegesis of the Torah, an explanation of how the Torah functions. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, but give the glory to him. Don't take any credit for your deeds, because before God, you're a failure. But the point is that Jesus, insofar as his judgment, the way that he's judging is faithful to the literal content of the text, he will be judged by the literal content of the text. So if he sticks with what the text is saying, the text will safeguard him when he's judged, and that's why his father rescues him from the grave. But when we judge by our own standard and our own measure in Matthew, which always lacks mercy, this will be teased out repeatedly in the Gospel of Matthew, that when the Lord judges, he's merciful. When we judge, we are not merciful. We tend to take it out on our neighbor, especially the weaker brother. And so therefore, God will exact the same judgment against us. It's really critical, and it's linked to this idea of what you are bearing witness to. You want always to bear witness to something that pertains to God in Scripture so that your witness will be life-giving and not empty, vain speech.
0: The threat is that if you judge, you're going to be judged by the same measure that you're judging others, but you can't trust your own method of measuring whether other people are doing the right thing or not. Jesus says you can't trust yourself because your measure is not a good measure, so If you're using that measure to judge yourself and others, it's going to end up terrible. And I think that what you said, Father, is exactly how this works because the human measurement for judgment does not include mercy. Human beings are not wise. They have eternity in their heart, but they cannot grasp it. Human beings cannot be wise enough to be the judge, their means of judgment can't be trusted.
1: I just saw this film with my kids over the holidays the new dc film about aquaman it's difficult for me richard as a student of scripture to watch these programs anymore because it's all the same hellenistic motif it's all about the glorification of some superhuman who's going to save everyone and when they try to insert any hint of a christian metaphor into these stories it makes me just physically uncomfortable because. It's just a continuation of the Hellenization of the gospel. It's just wicked and unfortunate. But there was a scene in the film where the main character allowed someone to die because he felt, according to his own judgment, that this person deserved to die. So he didn't help him. He didn't intervene. And I was hopeful that the film would take that as an opportunity to say something meaningful about mercy. But the character never repented. The character engaged in what I would call real politic, meaning when the opportunity to become introspective and to confess that he did not show mercy to someone and that you should always show mercy. When that opportunity came, he didn't show remorse. He simply explained how it wasn't advantageous to him not to show mercy. And so next time he would, because there'd be something for him to gain from it. And that made me sick. It made me sick, because that's where we are as a culture. We can't even talk about mercy for mercy's sake. The films we release over the holidays now talk about mercy for their economic value. Now, I'm sure the writers are trying to say something about foreign policy, but it was inept and it was disappointing. And it speaks to the importance of the Gospel of Matthew. And my kids looked at me and they said, Papa, what did you think of the film? And I hate to disappoint my kids. Because when children look to their dad, they want to know that their dad enjoyed it with them. So I chose my words carefully, but it went something like this. The more I study scripture,
0: the harder it is for me to enjoy movies. Every secular story has a teaching. And the secular story, by definition, Has no God. When I say that I'm not lamenting the secularization of society, it's nothing like that. It's that the judge is not the judge. The judge is not the scriptural judge. The measure of a person's conduct is not this text. And therefore, it's going to be selfish. It's therefore going to be idol worship. And yeah, that's a sad situation we're in, Father, because I have the same problem with movies, because the measure that I use to understand a movie, the template I use when I hear the story is scripture and the scriptural text. And it's always falling short because of the human being, human ambition, and the human ego.
1: Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? This is universal wisdom. It's absolutely universal. There isn't a person alive, including you and I, who in speaking this text and conveying this text aren't guilty of everything we say the text is condemning. So therefore, as we've said now for several years on the podcast, why not just apply Scripture to yourself? That's the point. It applies to you. The example we've given in the past is that Scripture is like a piece of technology that works when you hold it in your hands and apply it to yourself, but deactivates when you point it at someone else. That's the point of verse 3. The point of verse 3 is not everybody's a hypocrite so nobody can teach, which is what everybody wants to say, because no one wants to be challenged. Jesus had to sit on the seat of Moses in order to convey the Torah to his students, and they rebelled against him and judged him. He had to do that. And the proposition of Matthew is that when Jesus sat on that seat and was judged for conveying that teaching, it was a martyrdom. I cannot stress this enough. But for the rest of us, whether we are the teacher or the disciple, when we hear or convey this instruction, we have to apply it to ourselves. If one doesn't read carefully, one
0: skips over a significant part of this, and that's your brother. There's a reason why it's brother, because it's not your father or your son. If it's your father, you aren't allowed to judge them because the father is the one who is doing the teaching. You're simply the student. Your job is not to say whether they're doing the right thing or not. If it's your son, it's absolutely your duty to say whether they're doing the right thing or not. But when it's your brother, you're an equal under a single master. I am not allowed to say whether you're following the instruction or not, because it's your master. All I'm able to do is say, am I following the teaching or not? I can't be responsible for whether someone else who is also a slave, a servant, or a student of that teaching Whether they're doing it or not, I can't know. Because don't forget, chapters 5 and 6 were all about the stuff that's done in secret that only God knows. If only God knows them, then I can't say whether the other person is doing it right or not. I can't. Jesus already took away the ability from the human being to be able to discern that. I am not able to judge the other because I can't see clearly what they're doing.
1: I cannot be the judge. This is probably a good place to stop today, Richard. It's Christmas Eve for us. We're recording this show on Monday, and we have a lot of services and a lot of activities ahead of us this week at St. Elizabeth. Merry Christmas, Father. Merry Christmas, Rich. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.